Well, if you have your Bible, I will encourage you, invite you to turn to Acts chapter 13, verse 42. We're going to go all the way to chapter 14, verse 7. Acts chapter 13, I will re- begin by reading from verse 42. So, brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and inerrant word. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke out, broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout woman of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were, were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Well, let me begin by making a confession to you. And that is, I don't like conflicts and divisions. If you do, well, something's odd. But I think all of us do not want to be put into a position where we have to talk to someone at work or at school or at home or even at church for misbehavior. And see, when that happens, uh, we cannot predict how that person uh, will respond to us or will react to us. And if you have to confront someone who doesn't like you, then most likely he or she will not welcome your remark. And this is especially true in the Christian life. 
when we try to share the gospel and give them the biblical worldview to non-believers. Sometimes they may want to listen and accept your thoughts, or they're not interested in what you have to say, and they just push your thoughts aside. You see, in this passage, we recall that Paul preached the gospel to the Jews and Gentiles in the synagogue. And throughout his sermons, he's pointing his audience to Jesus Christ by summarizing the story of the Old Testament, showing them how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises found in Scripture, and pleading them to respond to the message of salvation. See, whenever the gospel is proclaimed, we must be prepared for different responses, and one of which is opposition. And when the gospel is proclaimed, it can divide people. Now, this may sound shocking to some of you. Jesus not only came to bring salvation to sinners who repent and believe, but he also came to become the great divider of humanity. Hear these words from our Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 to 53. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you but rather division. For, for from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her mother, daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. See, as Christians, we shouldn't be personally you know, divisive or offensive. We should be loving and gracious and kind to others. But the gospel we proclaim is an offensive message. When we choose to follow Jesus Christ, there will always be those who will not. Hence the division. And it is in this passage that we read that people in Antioch and people in Iconium responded differently to the gospel. It says clearly in chapter 14, verse 4, but the people of the city were divided. You see here, some believed in the message and sided with Paul and Barnabas, and some rejected the message and sided with the Jewish leaders to oppose and to antagonize the missionaries. And so in this passage, we will learn about the two groups, those who believed and those who rejected. But I'll add one more group, but you'll have to find out near the end of, the, of my message. And so first, let's talk about those who believed. Those who believed, they hungered for the word of the Lord. They hungered for the word of the Lord, as according to verses 42 to 44. You see, after Paul concluded his sermon, people in, at, in the synagogue begged them to return so that Paul's sermon would be preached again. And the message that they've heard was not anything that they've ever heard in their life. It was fresh, it was new, and perhaps new to them because they got to know that Jesus, the Messiah, came to fulfill God's promises. And then many, many, many people, Jews and Gentiles, follow Paul and Barnabas, who I think might have become believers after the sermon. And we're not told how many of them followed. But this is, a, this is great news. 
because they want to know and learn more about the word of the Lord. The desire to hear the word of God is one of the marks of a born-again believer. There is spiritual hunger in them. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2-3, Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow, grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You see, these people, they can hardly wait until the next Sabbath to hear the word again. But in the meantime, they're instructed to continue in the grace of God. See, having just heard the gospel of grace, they're to believe and to walk in that message and not fall away from grace by depending on the law of Moses. See, these people probably spend the whole weeks telling their family members and their friends and their neighbors about what they heard. And so, and so almost the whole city went to the synagogue to hear the word of the Lord. Notice that they're not going there to hear the word of Paul, nor the word of Barnabas, but they're going there to hear the word of the Lord. Ultimately, preaching is not all about the messenger, but it's all about the message found in God's word. I, my responsibility is to draw your attention to the word of God, not to draw your attention to me. And I wish, and I would pray, that at least it would happen in the Oak Ridge neighborhood and in the Marple neighborhood where people would just come to hear the word of the Lord. I know, the whole, I know the whole city of Vancouver will be too much. I'm a little bit pessimistic. But if you're optimistic, you can pray the whole city of Vancouver will come to hear the word of the Lord. But if the whole neighborhood, at least, came to hear the, the, hear the word of the Lord, that would be awesome. Praise be to God. And I pray that OBC, this church, will be the church where everyone hungers and thirsts for God's word and sound doctrine. And so these people hunger for the word of the Lord. Second, they bring glory to God. They bring glory to God. You see, the salvation of sinners ultimately bring glory to God. When a sinner becomes a believer, another worshiper of God is added. God's purpose is that the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. Salvation for sinners is not the end goal, but the means to a goal. And the goal is that people will become worshipers of God and grow in their desire and love for Jesus Christ. We'll return to verses 45 to 46 in a bit, but after Paul and Barnabas face some opposition from the Jews, namely the Jewish leaders in this context, they're going to the Gentiles because the Jews rejected the message of the Lord. They rejected the gospel. And so they proceed to quote from Isaiah 49, verse 6, where God, the Lord, commanded this, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, what's interesting about the quotation is that the context of Isaiah was describing God's servants. And this image of a servant is normally connected to Jesus Christ. 
And now Paul and Barnabas are actually taking the role of the servants and actually extending the work of Jesus Christ by bringing the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that really alludes back to our theme, the, the purpose of whole, the whole entire book of Acts. And that is Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so the Gentiles heard this news and rejoiced and glorified the word of the Lord. They didn't glorify Paul nor Barnabas. They glorified the word of the Lord, the gospel, because these Gentiles were included in the plan of salvation without the need to go through circumcision and other Jewish rites. See, when sinners are saved, they should discover their meaning and their purpose in life found in scripture and they're created that they're created in the image of God with value and dignity and for but for the purpose of glorifying their creator and that everything they do and say from then on is an act of worship to the one and only true triune God that's one of the purposes why we as a church exist this is why we gather for the purpose of worshiping and glorifying a triune God through praying, reading scripture, singing, and receiving the word. And so these people glorified the Lord. What we also learn about those who believe is that they were chosen by God. They were chosen by God. Luke says at the end of verse 48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You see, this word appointed can also be translated as chosen or ordained. The grammar of this verb is a past action. Something, it's something that happened in the past. And this verb is also in the passive form, meaning that the object is receiving the appointing. This strongly indicates that God was the one who does the appointing, the choosing, and the ordaining. How these many people believe unto eternal life is due to the fact that God appointed and chose and has chosen them. This is known as the doctrine of election. And that is, unless God chooses those whom he saves, no one can come to faith in Christ. Our statement of faith as a denomination says this. We believe that election is the eternal act of God's sovereign grace by which he chooses, calls, justifies, and glorifies sinners. That it is effectuated by the Holy Spirit through God's word in drawing sinners to Christ so that their wills are freely brought into compliance with God's elective purpose. You see, God is sovereign over everything. He is sovereign over the events of the world. He is sovereign over nature. He is sovereign over history. He is sovereign over our lives. And he is also sovereign over salvation, how we are saved. He is the one who assigned, and he is the one who appoints those who come to eternal life. And here's what you need to know about the doctrine of election. The faith of these Gentiles 
did not cause God to choose them. It's not that you had faith and then God chose you, but biblically it's the other way around. Is that God chose you, therefore you had faith. It is God's choosing that caused you to have faith. And the idea of election fits with the context of Paul's sermon earlier, whereby God is the one who's actively fulfilling His promises in redemptive history. Daryl Bach said this, and I quote. Just as God was the major active agent in the events of Israel's history earlier in the speech, so He is the active agent in bringing Gentiles to Himself. And if this is something new to you, even Jesus said this. That is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted to Him by the Father. The truth is that if you are born again Christian. A born-again believer is because of God's choosing. God chose to save you, and God chose to give you the gift of faith. Not because you were special, not because you're worthy, not because God saw in the future that you'll choose Him. God chose you in spite of your sinfulness, in spite of your rebellion, in spite of your idolatry. He chose you because of His amazing grace. And that should humble any believer from taking any pride and even credit in their salvation. Charles Spurgeon said this, and I quote: "I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen Him, and I am sure He chose me before I was appointed, before I was born, or else He never would have chosen me afterwards." He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. End quote. So these people believe because they were chosen by God. Another thing we learn about is that they were chosen. They, they believe because about these believers is that they were spreading the message. They were spreading the message according to verse forty-nine. See, just as the believers here in Antioch. Spread the message, told everyone during the, during one week about what they heard. So these believers spread the word of the Lord throughout the whole region of Galatia. That's the point of Acts one eight. When sinners become believers, they in turn become witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they would continue the great commission that God has given them. In In making disciples of all the nations, see God was doing a supernatural work in this in the city of Antioch in Pisidia, and he and he was transforming this city by the word of the Lord. Therefore, this city was turned upside down because Paul preached God's word. He didn't use political discourse. He didn't use gimmicks. He didn't use he didn't focus on social issues. He is all about the word. And so, similarly, these new believers were also all about the word. When Paul and Barnabas went to Iconium, they went to the Jewish synagogue to preach again, to preach the gospel again in chapter one of chapter fourteen, verse one. And instead of giving us another of Paul's sermon, we can assume that Paul and Barnabas were preaching the word of the Lord again. They didn't change their methodology. 
They didn't change their message. They didn't change their strategy and try to figure out what they could do better in preaching the gospel in the synagogue. They continued to remain faithful. Luke gives us a result, chapter 14, verse 1, that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Like, I wonder what OBC and this neighborhood would be like if we literally mimic what these believers did. Not keeping the word to ourselves, but actually spreading it to our schools, workplaces, family members, and wherever we're at. And that we pray, bow on our knees and pray that many would believe in the Lord. What we also learn about these believers is that they were joyful and spirit-filled. It's a very simple point. But after Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas departed from Antioch, these believers in Antioch did not seem to feel grieved and sad that they left, although perhaps that's possible. But because God saved and caused them to be born again, and because they had discovered the truth of God in Scripture, they rejoiced and they lived a spirit-filled life. So when the gospel divides, it divides those who believed from those who rejected. Those who believed were hungering for the word of the Lord. They were bringing glory to God. They were chosen by God. They were spreading the word, and they were joyful and spirit-filled. And now we move on to the second group. That is those who rejected. Those who rejected. That is the gospel. And that is in both places where Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel, they were met with opposition because the Jews rejected the message. Take a look at verse 45 where it says, But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Now, I want you to notice something about this word, but. This word is repeated many times in this passage that we read. Three times it is used when the Jewish leaders responded in hostility towards the missionaries. In verse 45, and verse 50, and verse 2 of chapter 14. You see, these people were motivated to silence the message. They were motivated to silence the message. See, what we learn is that these Jews were filled with jealousy to see that the crowds went to hear the word of the Lord from Paul and Barnabas. They were gaining an audience instead of these religious Jews. In light of the context, it was seen that the Jews weren't happy with the Gentiles knowing the word of the Lord, which is why Paul and Barnabas just turned to the Gentiles. The Jews may have had a narrow-minded view of salvation. The Jews weren't happy that they were knowing the word of the Lord because they thought that salvation only applied to them, only belonged to them, while being ignorant of the fact that the Old Testament teaching taught that salvation also included the Gentiles and that the Israel, the Jews, were meant to be the light to them. Let's talk about human jealousy. Human jealousy is potentially destructive. And jealousy is really close, is closely connected to envy and covetousness. It can destroy relationships. It can lead to theft. It can lead to murder. It can lead to slander and lying and even inciting violence. 
Paul will experience suffering and persecution. People will slander him. People will injure his reputation. People will speak falsely against him. People will do what it takes to silence Paul, even if it means putting him to death. And we'll learn in the next, next passage that the people stoned him. Now, not, that may not always happen to us in our Canadian culture. Perhaps it may never happen because we're Canadians and we're supposed to be nice and we're supposed to be respectful of other people's beliefs in this pluralistic society. However, when, when we stand firm on our conviction on many of the biblical values and principles like marriage and sexuality, we may be slandered by society and we may be labeled by society as haters and intolerant and backwards and worse than end with phobic. We will, when we stand on our feet, on the solid rock of God's word, we will be slandered one way or another. And that's exactly when, that's exactly what happened to Paul and Barnabas. After they were threatened in Antioch, they traveled to Iconium, from the top left here in this map, all the way to the middle, that's Iconium. Eventually, they will, eventually Paul and Barnabas will travel to uh, Lystra and Derbys down south and then to southeast. And here, in, in here this time, when they're in Iconium, the unbelieving Jews didn't directly attack Paul and Barnabas, but they stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. To poison their minds means to cause a person's attitude to be bad against someone. They spoke badly about them, perhaps gossiped and lied, and provided public opinion against them. It's unclear what these Jews said to the Gentiles, and it's unclear how they poisoned their minds, but the goal is to make them hostile towards the missionaries. And this can easily be done on the internet. Perhaps at, at least just one word of slander can put a shockwave to those who hear. It's like, this person was like that? Since this, these missionaries seem rather popular in the city of Iconium, it's not hard to receive criticism from the public. And what's fascinating is that while traditionally Jews and Gentiles didn't speak and eat with one another, they somehow formed an alliance of opposition against Paul and Barnabas. See, opposition and dispute from the Jews have been common themes for the followers of Jesus in the book of Acts. Most of them have been antagonistic against Jesus, the apostles, and now Paul. And they will continue, and this will continually be the pattern in Acts, and we should be reminded of this reality on a regular basis. Is that people will silence our message one way or another. And here's what's terrifying about those who reject the gospel. They will be held accountable for their unbelief. They will be held accountable for their unbelief. And here in verse 46, Paul and Barnabas responded to the Jews with an indictment. And that is, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to these Jews. See, God chose Israel to be his witnesses to, be, to the Gentile nations. 
Christ's ministry was first to, the, to Israel, and it was through Israel that salvation was to come to the world. And so similarly, the apostles went to the Jews first because their Messiah came and fulfilled the scriptures. And here's what's ironic about this situation. See, these Jews, these Jewish leaders, they actually believe in scripture as authoritative. They believe in the word of God. They believe in the Old Testament. Yet all at the same time, when Paul and Barnabas preached from the Old Testament in regards to Jesus Christ, it says that they rejected the word. They rejected the word. They thrust it aside. They thrust the word of God aside. And this word, through thrust, it can also be translated as to repudiate or to no longer pay attention. These Jews were no different from their forefathers in the Old Testament. When Israel was in rebellion, when they were in rebellion, God sent prophets to them to declare a message to them. And that's to warn them and call them to repentance. But they were stubborn people. They rejected God's word and warning through the prophets, and they condemned and persecuted the prophets and killed them. The unbelieving Jews rejecting the word of God is actually a theme in Scripture. It happened to Jesus when he testified before the Jewish leaders that the Scripture pointed to him. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, it says this. He said to the Jewish leaders, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And it says later on, For if you believe Moses, you will believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? See, not only did the unbelieving Jews thrust the word of God aside, but they also judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. And what does that mean? See, see, since they chose to repudiate the gospel, a message of how to receive eternal life, they essentially condemned themselves for their destructive decision and that they will take responsibility for their choice when they face the Lord on the, judge, on the day of judgment. Jesus told a parable about the wedding feast. There, there were those who, was, who were invited to the wedding feast, which were referring to the Jews, but they would not come. They declined the invitation. And Jesus said that those who were invited were not worthy. Oh, what a terrifying thing to hear, that you are invited to the wedding feast, you're invited to the kingdom of God and that you're invited to repent and believe in the gospel. But you rejected it and then you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. What a terrifying it will be to be, un- to be counted as unworthy. However, these Jews were not phased by, at all by the indictment and warning. They moved to the next stage in their hostility, which is to incite violence and persecution against Paul and Barnabas in verse 50, and eventually driving them out of the city district. See, this is a mob mentality. As they're going out, they shook off the dust from their feet against 
them and went to Iconium. Now, what's, what's, what does this mean? What does it mean to shake off the, the dust on your feet? Well, just to give you a simple illustration, perhaps all of us do this, but for my family, before we go inside the house, after going outside for a, long, for a while, we always take off our shoes because we do not want to bring stains and germs into our carpet, on the floor, from the places we walked around. So similarly, to shake off the dust from their feet is actually a symbolic gesture to communicate that the very soil of the country from where they walked was defiled. Traditionally, traditionally, whenever the Jews returned to Israel from their travels, they would not want to bring Gentile dust back into Israel, for the Gentile land was defiled so that they would shake off the, the dust from their feet, from their sandals. And so for Paul and Barnabas, they shook off the dust from their feet against the Jews and not want to bring their unbelief and their defilement to the next location. And it's also a way to tell them, your unbelief is no longer my problem. The consequences and the responsibility of your unbelief is yours. You take responsibility now. And such response was also given by our Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 9, verse 5. Where, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. See, what these Jews did in Antioch and in Iconium in rejecting the gospel and in preventing people from hearing the message is rather damning upon their own souls. Paul wrote these words in 1 Thessalonians, and it's quite possible he had this event in mind when he wrote it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. See, this is the second group that is divided from those who believed. And I wouldn't want this anyone this morning to be those who reject the gospel. And if that is you, may the Lord grant you the gift of faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and to follow him all the days of your life. But I did mention that there's one more group. There's one more group that Luke talks about here in this passage, and that is those who proclaimed. Those who proclaim. Now, those who proclaim are also in the same group of those who believed. And we should take note of Paul and Barnabas and how they handled the events unfolded before us. And that is they continue to be bold in chapter 13, verse 46, and in chapter 14, verse 3, they continue to be bold. With, strong, with the strong opposition against them in Antioch and Iconium, Paul and Barnabas were not intimidated by their threats. They would not leave their post unless it's absolutely necessary. 
And in both situations, they continue to be bold in their faith and proclaiming the gospel. And I think boldness should be an essential quality of the Christian life. Timothy, Paul's protege, was timid and fearful. But Paul said that God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. See, without boldness, Christians cannot fulfill the great commission that our Lord Jesus has given to us. Without boldness, Joshua and the army of Israel wouldn't have crossed the Jordan River to take the promised land. Without boldness, David wouldn't have confronted Goliath. And we have seen in Acts how the apostles were bold in their faith in the midst of suffering and persecution. Troubles didn't face them. They were bold because the Spirit of God empowered them. They were bold because they were confident. They were confident and convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead. And they were willing to tell everyone about it, even if it would cost them their own lives. And so after Paul and Barnabas were threatened with mistreatment and stoning, they fled to Lystra and Derbe, the cities of Lycaonia, to the surrounding country, which, which is in the Roman province of Galatia. And there, what did they do when they went there? They continued to preach the gospel. That's what they did. They did not hide from persecution. They did not retreat and go back to Jerusalem. They continued to be faithful in doing what they're called to do. Again, they did not change the message of the gospel to, to, to be less divisive and to be less offensive to the crowd. See, we're in, we are in the greatest danger in our day of taking the offense out of the gospel. Some may have become ashamed of the gospel message. Some have made the gospel a safe and palatable message that would offend no one. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about repentance. Don't talk about holiness, the holiness of God. Don't talk about hell, eternal judgment. Talk about how Jesus loves you and how he has a plan for you. Yes, Jesus died for you, but so long as you believe in him, just simply believe in him, pray to, pray to prayer, and then you're saved. But there's no repentance and change of heart. Brothers, brothers and sisters, that's not the gospel. That's not the good news. There's no good news without proclaiming the bad news. See, Augustine said this, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. You see, the gospel is offensive. I didn't make it offensive. The church did not make it offensive. Who made it offensive? God. God made the message offensive. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians should be obnoxious and brash, but lovingly deliver the message. See, this message, the gospel, is divisive because it confronts the deadliest thing in the human heart, that is sin. The gospel confronts your pride. The gospel confronts your lust and sexual immorality. The gospel confronts your apathy. It confronts your unbelief. It confronts your greed. It confronts your everything that is wrong with you and everything that is wrong with this godless society. It convicts you of your sins before a holy and righteous God 
And since the gospel is offensive, how can we expect anyone to believe the message? Well, we need to trust in the sovereignty of God. Trust in the sovereignty of God. Since God made the message offensive, this same God made the same message powerful and sufficient enough to, to save lost sinners by offering them a way to have their sins forgiven. The responsibility of Paul and Barnabas was to proclaim the message, the gospel, the word of the Lord to those who hear it. That God sent his one and only son to be the sacrifice and substitute for, sin, for, for unworthy sinners like us and that he raised them from the dead. They don't have the power to transform lives. I don't have the power to transform your life. I cannot force you to believe. Only God can change you through, through his word. Only God has appointed and chosen those who will believe unto eternal life. So similarly, it's not by our own intelligence, our strategy, our method, our eloquence that can ultimately persuade sinners to believe. It is God alone through the gospel that can do that. Again, no one can come to Christ unless God has granted it to him. We need to trust in the sovereignty of God. See, nobody can be saved apart from faith in Christ. And if you are saved this morning, it is because God chose to save you and all the glory goes to him. If you are lost and have rejected the gospel, it is because of your stubborn pride and disobedience. And if you die tonight not having repented of your sins and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you will be condemned by the holy God in eternal judgment and hell. And you will be responsible for your own choice. Therefore, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, let us proclaim this unadulterated gospel, this pure gospel to the dying world that is in need of the Savior. Even if it is a device, device, divisive message, it is the only gospel that can save lost sinners. Let's pray. Father God, we are challenged this morning by this message by this gospel. It indeed divides those who believe and those who don't believe. It divides the sheep from the goat. Oh Lord, I pray that this morning, as the gospel has been proclaimed, the people who have heard this gospel, may they side, side with the message of the gospel and not side with the, those who rejected the gospel. I pray that you will have mercy upon us, even as we consider now, as we enter into a time of the Lord's Supper, celebrating the Lord's Supper, remembering what Christ has done for us in his death, paying the penalty of our sins, to suffer the wrath of God on our behalf, all to demonstrate what, a, what amazing love you have for us. We cannot ever fathom the grace and that all you call us to do is repent and believe and that there's, we don't need to do anything else. We're to repent and believe in this message, to be saved and to have our sins forgiven and that those who confess 
that Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, they would indeed be saved. So I pray that if there are those who have not, who have not truly believed, that they would indeed have faith and believe that they throw their whole being, their whole soul in the arms of our loving God. Because only he can save. That they will turn from their sinful ways. That they will turn to Christ and walk with him and follow him all the days of our life. And as we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, help us to reflect reflect this time. Help us to be mindful that when we take the Lord's Supper, that we do not do it in an unworthy manner. This I pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.